Hey, functional friends, Bren Vermeyer here. Welcome to the Holistic Savage podcast, where we like to talk about all things related to functional health, including functional medicine, functional fitness, functional spirituality, functional psychology, and basically everything in between. And of course, you can't spell functional without fun. So we like to have a good time on this show. Now, before we get started with introducing today's honored guest, I want to remind you all that the content of this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not at all intended to be a replacement for supervised healthcare. So be sure that you're working proactively with your licensed healthcare provider to make sure that all of your healthcare and medical needs are being met effectively. Of course, if you're interested in our functional services at Metabolic Solutions, you can send us an email at info at metabolicsolutionsllc.com. And of course, visit our website, metabolicsolutionsllc.com. Also, if you love this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you share it with your family and friends, like it, follow us, subscribe, review. It really means the world because ultimately, I believe that the greatest miss involves to teach people how not to need it. And the first step towards change is awareness and then education and empowerment. So that is what my platform is dedicated to. That's what this podcast is dedicated to, is helping educate and empower self-healers around the world so that they can overcome their greatest health objectives. So be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review and don't forget to share with your loved ones. So without further ado, let's get started with today's guest. Thank you so much for being here. All right, functional friends, welcome back to the Holistic Savage podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I know that I kind of say the same thing for every episode, but I literally could not be more honored and excited about this month's podcast guest. And I, I don't even know where to begin to tell you why. So let me get started by formally introducing Karan Krishnan, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, who he is to me as a professional and, and why uh, I think he's just so special. So. Karan Krishnan is a research microbiologist and has been involved in the dietary supplement and nutrition market for the past 18 years. He comes from a university research background, having spent several years with hands-on research and development in the fields of molecular medicine and microbiology at the University of Iowa. Karan established a clinical research organization where he designed and conducted dozens of human clinical trials in human nutrition. Kiran is also a co-founder and partner in New Science Trading LLC, a nutritional technology development and research company. Kiran is also a co-founder and chief scientific officer at Microbiome Labs. He is a frequent lecturer on the human microbiome at medical and nutrition conferences. He is an expert guest on national and satellite radio, has appeared in several international documentaries and has been a guest speaker on several international health summits as a microbiome expert. He is currently involved in 16 novel human clinical trials on probiotics in the human microbiome. Karan is also on the scientific advisor, advisory board, 
Karan is also on the Scientific Advisory Board or a Scientific Advisor for seven other companies in the industry. So that is Karan's official bio, and that's the short version of his official bio, which is just amazingly impressive because what, what a resume, what a bio, the amounts of projects at the international level and so many human clinical trials, so many published studies. This is truly a, a man of science and an absolute world-leading expert when it comes to microbiome sciences. So with all of that said, I'd like to tell you just a little bit. I always, you, you all know me. I like to tell a little bit of a story of how I know the guest and who they are to me because this podcast is really such a passion project for me because I'm just I'm just a guy from Kansas that I have my interests, I have my passions, and I feel like I'm just getting to really live the dream and I feel so spoiled and privileged to be connected to these world-renowned leaders and experts in various fields related to holistic health and functional medicine. Every single guest that I've ever had on the podcast is somebody that's special to me, is somebody that I feel that I have good rapport with or a good friendship with, some more so than others. But I'll be completely honest and candid, when it comes to Quran, he's just at a different level, right? And, and I just wanna to speak to that for a second because I really don't idolize humans much at all anymore you know certainly in the past when i was younger there were certain figures that i looked up to or idolized and and for various for various uh qualities that they exhibit and um really demonstrate through their their day-to-day -day actions and their career and their character and i really don't do that anymore because as i've said in previous episodes they always say that you know you shouldn't meet your idols because in, it, more often than not sometimes you feel let down whereas when i first met Quran, i mean i was i was blown away because i listened to him speak i listened to him lecture and he had so much charisma and confidence and he was so suave and cool and rocking an amazing suit um, but he was also just brilliant and kind and humble and warm and his aura was good. Uh, I could just tell that he, he was special, he was different. And that was the very first time I, I had really met him. And then over the past few years, I've continued to develop more and more rapport and really what has been a very uh, important and rewarding friendship and relationship uh, in my life. And I would, I would, you know, I, again, I, I don't, I don't say this about everybody, but when it comes to the people that I really respect and admire and, and do idolize, he's literally at the top of the list. I can't think of anybody else that I have more respect for or look up to more than him. And I want to tell you a little bit, a little bit why. Because first off, honestly, some of the people that I know that have really, really, really big followings. I don't actually see a lot of impressive substance from. And I really, I don't really love this insta-famous game that we're all playing. Because you know what, the people that are really changing the world are usually not insta-famous. They're the ones that are changing the world without even ever getting that recognition for it or getting the fame or, or whatever, because that's not what it's about. And so in a lot of ways, I feel like the people that are really having the biggest impact they are not the insta-famous ones. 
they're the ones that are actually changing the world behind the scenes and you may never actually hear their name, right? And so Karan Krishnan is somebody that to me is changing the world. This is a, a man with a, a, a true scientific research background in microbiome sciences and is working at the international global level to advance our understanding of the microbiome in regards to human health. And it has, has been a co-author and published countless, countless research studies in peer-reviewed journals, has lectured all over the world, has changed the way that business is done within these industries. I, I just can't speak highly enough about about it. And then all the while, he's one of the warmest, most genuine, attentive, uh, caring, and humble individuals I've ever met. I meet some of these people, these quote-unquote influencers and with the the big name and the big following that from my personal perspective are not making that big of a difference or I don't think their their work is really that impressive and yet they get all the fame and the attention and, and their egos are usually even bigger than their followings but then there's there's true honorable respectable men and people and leaders like Karan that are really doing the work, changing the way that business is being done in these arenas, changing the way that science is being done for the betterment of humanity. And then all the while, he's the kind of guy that will take time out of his <laughs> extremely busy life and schedule to give me some professional guidance. So that's all to say that I literally could not have more respect, more admiration, or more love for this guy. The fact that he took time out of his, his illustrious career to do this interview, to do this podcast with me, or to meet with me behind the scenes to give me some guidance in, in my aspirations of how I hope and aspire to change the world, um, it means the world. and. You guys, you are in for an amazing, amazing treat with this episode. You are getting to see into the minds of a true world-changing leader and expert. So I, I hope that you feel it. I hope you soak up every word out of this podcast because it was an amazing conversation with somebody who deserves all the respect and admiration. And yet... He never asks for any of that recognition or or uh, any of that egocentric thing. He's just doing the work because it's the right thing to do, and he's doing it the right way. So um, I could go on and on and on, but uh, he's a special one, and this is a very special episode uh, for you all, and it's a, it's an extremely special episode for me, and uh, I know you're going to love it. So let's go and get started with this this amazing episode. Ladies and gentlemen, folks, friends, welcome back to the Holistic Savage Podcast. So today is a very special day. All my guests are amazing. I feel, you know, in some ways unworthy of the amazing uh, colleagues and friends that I have and get to rub elbows with and, and learn from. And, and so the podcast is really a passion project for me to get to learn from my great-minded friends and then get to pass on that education and educate and empower everybody. So 
I will do a more formal intro later, but this man, Kiran Krishnan, is somebody that is on a very short list of people that I really do credit for having a tremendous impact on my career, somebody I really look up to, uh, an expert, an ambassador, a leader in this industry. And, and I think by the end of the conversation, you all will get to really understand why that is. So when I think of the people that have had a big impact and, and tremendous kind of influence on my career path, he's really at that top of the list. So it's really a, a huge pleasure to get to welcome Karan to the show. So welcome back for the second time now, my friend. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. It's very kind of you to say. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be back and, uh, and I'm excited about our conversation. Absolutely, man. You know, it's you're you're a real influencer. These days we, we live in this age of like virtual social media influencers and uh, it gets a little goofy. It gets a little, uh, I don't know, egocentric and smoke and mirrors and all this stuff that I'm not really a big fan of. Whereas when I think about the people that are really out there making a big difference, that are changing the industry, that are setting the curve, you know, creating new paradigms. And so, you know, you're the genius microbiome man himself uh, behind Microbiome Labs, an immensely successful research-based company, which what you guys have done in the functional medicine space and research space, you know, you really have set a new standard and really raised the bar when it comes to what kind of, you know, holistic functional interventions we're talking about and preaching about and forging that way with science. So I think what you guys are doing is, is unique. And that's almost sad to say that that's unique because you would think that that should be the standard. And so, you know, being a young up and comer in this industry, I looked at that and I was like, that makes a lot of sense. So I'd love to, just so the audience knows a little bit more about who you are, just hear a little synopsis on kind of your background as a microbiology researcher and how that brought you into the functional medicine space and healthcare space at large. Yeah, um, we'd love to talk about that. So, you know, my, my background is in training is as a research microbiologist. I did spend some time in, in the academic sector um, doing research in microbiology, a lot of work in the infectious disease area. Um, in particular viruses like HIV. I, I work on a number of projects with HIV and, and immune response and how to modulate immune response in HIV, inf infectious E. coli, and a number of things. Um, but I was always into natural health. I grew up in India, so I had a lot of um, exposure to Ayurvedic medicine. So there was a there was an innate interest in things like herbs and, and other uh, natural medicines where you know where i grew up in india that is as equally as big as allopathic medicine right so that was always ingrained in me and um you know i started to realize that as i got into sports and athletics and i started becoming a competitive cyclist i really got into the dietary supplement industry and started looking at what was out there in terms of offerings for people like me who are looking to enhance um you know your results from your workouts and your recovery and so on and I came to find out that as much as there are some cool things out there, there's also a lot of nonsense in the in the supplement industry, right? And, and the, a lot of it is really kind of driven by marketing and trends and specific languaging. So, um, and one of the things that really bothered me was actually the lack of scientific research uh, on products that are found in the dietary supplement industry. And I would call companies to ask them and talk to them about their products and ask them about research that they've done and you know, very, very, very few companies actually could speak to any clinical work that they've done on their products. Now, 
as I dug into it a little bit more, I, I came to understand that some companies intended on doing it, but clinical trials are really expensive, right? The gold standard trials are designed around the pharmaceutical model, the gold standard randomized control multi-center trials, and most supplement companies can't afford to do a half a million dollar trial only to find out that the product doesn't really work, right? Um, which is always a risk when you invest in research. You might find out that, well, your product didn't really do anything. And so the pharmaceutical companies can do that over and over and over again. One in a thousand compounds that they investigate actually makes it to market, but they have the bandwidth and the resources to be able to do that. So my first entry into this space was to try to figure out a model for research that was affordable for supplement companies and could give them uh, a preview of what the results may look like so that they can make a better decision on whether or not to invest in, in further research, right? So um, I developed a clinical research organization when I left the university, and I, which was in the south side of Chicago, called LibSmart. And that was my whole focus was designing clever, efficient clinical trials for nutritional companies so that instead of spending half a million dollars on a trial that may not turn out the way they hoped they, it would, they could spend thirty dollars or $40,000 looking into uh, and seeing if their product's going to have efficacy. And then if, if they saw that it was going to have efficacy, then they could invest a little bit more to expand the study. And I kind of changed how studies were done and, and went about the endpoints in a clever way. And that's kind of how I got pulled into this whole dietary supplement functional food world. As I started working and doing studies for more companies, they started inviting me in to be an advisor, a science advisor, a consultant on product development to try to bring the science to some of these things uh, that they were working on. And, and so I got completely entrenched in the industry, but behind the scenes for a number of years. You know, I did that for 14, 15 years. Uh, at the same time, I was working as a food safety microbiologist in the food industry. I was doing other consulting work, other research work of my own, um, and was really quite well entrenched in the supplement industry. And then I, you know, started to learn more about functional medicine uh, through my work with uh, companies that were in the functional medicine space. And that to me was a realization like, wow, okay, the future of healthcare is really this approach of holistic health and functional medicine. So what can I do to help that industry, right? And, that, and that's when we really started digging into the microbiome and how we can come up with products that really help and support the microbiome. Um, and then like you, like you mentioned early on, my whole goal was to set a new bar and then constantly push that bar up for what it means to be a dietary supplement company, for what it means to be a supporter of functional medicine uh, from a product standpoint and technology standpoint. And also I always had the goal of adding to the research, right? That, that to me is a really important role of most companies in this product, uh, sorry, in our industry. Most companies in the industry borrow and use other people's research. They don't necessarily add to it. I think it's extremely important for us to go more mainstream with the approach, which means we can help more people, we can change more lives. We have to add to the research. And uh, so that's just been my mission, you know, to, to elevate what it means to be a supplement company in this day and age. I love that. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that we started on that note because, um, you know, I get, a, I get a lot of, since the functional medicine space is, it's like the wild west, you know, mm -hmm. we've got this ginormous 
conventional healthcare system, the big pharma, how that goes into uh, funding research at the university level. And like you, you have to understand the giant system and how it's set up and interconnected. And then it's like outside of that, there's not really anything too structured uh, in place. And as you were saying, you know, most of these supplement companies, it's like there's uh, historically not as much money to be made in dietary supplements or researching. And as you said, most of these companies, they don't have the the deep enough pockets or the investors in the funding. Um, but now as kind of the collective consciousness is waking up and realizing something doesn't quite feel right about this sort of standard uh, American lifestyle that we're being not just spoon fed, but kind of shoved down our throats. And you know, you watch, you're watching TV and it's like fast food, sugar, pharmaceutical, fast food, sugar, pharmaceutical. And people are getting tired of that. And they're, they're realizing that maybe natural health, holistic health, functional medicine. And so I get all these, you know, trying to navigate the functional medicine space myself has been really hard. But then now I have all these other people like, well, how did you get to where you are? And I'm like, well, look, there's no such thing as a doctor of functional medicine. There's no functional medical school. Um, and this is also where, you know, with my background in fitness and nutrition, kind of similar, similar story to you and how I got into it. And I was really caught off guard by I came into this space and it still felt kind of reductionistic, kind of myopic, a little bit dry. And I felt like there was a, just a severe lack of, of evidence behind the claims. And it felt very driven by, as you said, kind of trendy and, you know, sensationalism. And so, you know, I'm really glad and fortunate that, you know, I connected with people like you and Carrie Jones and other real leaders that are driving this industry and leading this industry with more um, evidence and even just your story kind of illustrates how there are all these gaps in yeah. the big systems. And this is obviously why you are a real leader with setting a new standard and, and working on like, okay, well, we have this, you know, system to produce pharmaceutical research and clinical trials for more of the pharmaceutical, but, you know, somebody's got to be doing that work to create a way. And that's exactly what you're doing is paving that way where we can start having, um, you know, more evidence behind the claims of natural supplements. And of course, right now we have this um, sort of clamor going on with the FDA wanting to like maybe make a move on N-acetylcysteine and, and stuff like that. So it's a little bit um, of an odd time, but, you know, thanks to your work, we are, you know, raising that bar, setting the standard, because if we're, if we're not basing our, you know, functional medical claims or alternative healing, whatever we want to call it, if we're not basing it off evidence, it's like, well, what the hell are we doing then? And we're never going to add legitimacy to this concept of natural healing. Yeah. And, you know, more often than not, it, a lot of it, it ends up being based on an N of one, right? Yeah. It's one person's experience with this compound, that compound, this diet, and, and how good they are about going out there and marketing their experience. And then that becomes the go-to standard, you know, like let's say one person does amazingly well on the carnivore diet, you know, and they write a book about it and blog and this and that, then all of a sudden that becomes a quote unquote scientifically validated way for everybody. Right. And so we, we, we have to struggle against a lot of that as well. And, Ultimately, you know, my goal, and I think the goal of a lot of people in our industry is to help as many people as we can, right? Mm -hmm. We see the flaws in the conventional approach to chronic illness. We see all of the holes and the things that are missing um, that could 
be plugged up, which will change lives really dramatically. We see that. But the vast majority of people are still in the allopathic space, right? There are times where even I can get lost and you and I are in the same little bubble of really health conscious, right? Functional medicine, holistic health people. And it seems like there's a lot of progress and there's a lot of movement, but then you stop and realize that probably makes up like 1% of the patient population, mm -hmm. right? Where there's the other 98, 99% of people out there that have no understanding of any of this, yeah. that have no access to any of this, and they're working with doctors that have no understanding or access to any of this either, right? So, so we really have to understand systems biology. We have to have the evidence. We have to have good trials showing the impact and efficacy of the natural and, and more functional approach to health. And, and we have to start encroaching on that bigger part of the population. We have to start encroaching on the allopathic doctors. We have to have the right type of evidence to convince them, or we're always just gonna be helping people in our little bubble, you know, and, and it's not gonna make that much of a difference. Absolutely, that was well said. I almost made the joke about the end of one, you know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. it does feel that way. And, and I, I've I've gotten some good feedback recently, which tells me I'm maybe, you know, saying, getting the message across that I want, where I've had people say, like, I wanted to do your training, your institute, because you're not anti-conventional. And that's, that's where these, sometimes there is, and we live in such a divisive kind of polarized time as a society, as a collective, which is so sad because you know, I think most reasonable, rational, uh, intellectual humans realize like the truth is usually in the middle. So, yeah. you know, we've got this conventional system that, you know, love it or hate it, the sign, the level of scientific evidence is very, very, very strong. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the rigor of, uh, human clinical trials before a pharmaceutical is going to come to the market versus then. Yeah. As you said, in the functional medicine space, it's like, you know, somebody had a good anecdotal experience with one patient. Therefore that becomes like, the sensationalized standard of, of yep. what's being practiced. And I see that all the time, which drives me nuts because there's so many gaps in, you know, what we can really test or measure effectively with lab testing. And then the, the evidence of the supplements and how that plays into the lab results and all these things. And so that's where I always joke of like, you know, the conventional narrative, you know, it's like you go see your primary care and where your blood work looks normal. There's nothing wrong with you. It's on your head. You want something to make you feel better. But then you go, you know, spend 50,000, 100,000 on a functional medicine doctor, a self-proclaimed functional medicine doctor, whatever that means. And it's like, actually, you have leaky gut, leaky brain, MCAS, mold illness, Lyme, you know, and you walk away with like this laundry list of pseudo diagnoses that there is no ICD-10 code for. And right. so it just becomes a mess. And it's kind of this functional go around, as I've started calling it, where, you know, one person, oh, well, it must be methylation. So you test for that. You do the protocol for that. Well, that didn't work. It must be mold. It must be Lyme. It must be mercury. Right. Uh, and it's just like, what the hell is happening here? Functional friends, I'm sure you're enjoying the episode and hopefully you're feeling inspired and motivated and maybe your brain is hurting a little bit or maybe the gears are turning on all the, the new knowledge nuggets that you can implement into your day-to-day -day life or your functional health practice. So keep in mind that self-healing does not mean you try to figure everything out on your own. Something that I see emerging more and more on social media is everybody's trying to figure it all out on their own and navigate their healing journeys alone. I really don't 
don't recommend that. So certainly when my car and my Jeep is making funny sounds, I don't try to fix it myself. I'm not an auto mechanic. I am going to take ownership of the situation. I am going to do my amateur research, ask around, get quotes, take it to an expert auto mechanic that I trust. So self-healing is all about being ready, willing, and able to take ownership of your health and your situation and ready, willing, and able to do what it takes to transcend your health struggles and actually heal. But that doesn't mean that you should try to figure it out all on your own. So of course, you should absolutely be working proactively with your primary care physician to make sure that your conventional medical needs are being met. With that said, of course, conventional healthcare has its limitations, in which case you might want to consider working one-on-one -on -one with a functional medicine provider and or functional health coach. And of course, I am happy to consider working with you myself. You can apply to be a client of mine and my team by emailing info at metabolicsolutionsllc.com. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all so much for listening to the Holistic Savage podcast. We on the Holistic Savage team all really appreciate you and want to stay connected with you. So please rate, review, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. And if you like the podcast, help get the word out. And now back to the show. So I like that end of one. Yeah. And, and, you know, unfortunately, um, People go through that ringer and oftentimes before they come to the functional medicine part of the ringer, they've gone through the allopathic side yeah. of the ring, right? So they're, yeah. and, and so they're, they're worn out. They're, they're having a sense of hopelessness. They feel like crap. And then they come to the functional medicine side and then they'll go through a lot of that same kind of ringer, but with, with a different, uh, endpoint and different expectations. And, um, and at the end of the day, they're not getting better. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, like SIBO is a good example of that for me, right? It's like the same thought of how you treat SIBO. And I've probably lectured 50 times at 50 different conferences over the last two, three years um, about this whole idea of how we're treating and looking at SIBO in the functional medicine world and how, in fact, we're doing it very similarly to how the allopathic world is looking at it, right? Which is doing it with different compounds. Um, you know, we're using ant natural antimicrobials versus rifaximin, yeah. but it's still, we keep going after the same overgrowth and bloat without, you know, really going through the systems biology aspect of it and going, okay, where is the evidence? What is the evidence showing that could be the root cause of this, this issue? So, you know, I, I, I and I agree. And I, and I think when we get to work as, as microbiome labs, because we service the health professional market. We get to work with a lot of really awesome dynamic doctors and practitioners in this space. And, and there is movement, uh, by, by health practitioners who want to bring about some more structure to this approach, right? Of functional medicine. That's the one thing that allopathic medicine has is it's got amazing structure. Yeah. Right. There's, there's a certain way to work within it. And, and there are benefits to that, right? So it's not so much the wild west. In our world, we need a little bit more structure so that it's less wild west. It's less chasing things that, you know, don't necessarily make sense. It's not, oh, I heard this was effective for that one person. So I'm going to do this for the next 50 people. Um, you know, we, we need some more of that. And, and I think as a product company, we need to also bring about more of that kind of structure through evidence and education. Absolutely. So well said. And, and it, that is something I say a lot of the functional medicine, holistic health, biohacking space. It's 
very unregulated, very unmonopolized, very unstructured. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword. You know, with that freedom, we, we don't have the, the, the same constraints that conventional healthcare has necessarily, but it also makes the efficacy and reproducibility uh, very, you know, very, very hit or miss. And I love what you said about systems biology because, yeah, you know, it's like, okay, so, you know, we could treat inflammation with, um, you know, TNF-alpha blockers like Humira for, you know, IBD in the conventional or, or let's throw some quercetin and curcumin and, and all the way. It's like, well, I don't think your body is deficient in curcumin and, and are we still kind of getting to that root of, you know, why is the cytokine storm higher or whatever? So. That's where the concept of systems biology, and I think because I don't have a traditional background in anything, uh, you know, I'm PhD in Google, if you will, uh, PhD in PubMed. Um, you know, I think because I don't come from the academia world, I've been able to more easily wrap my head around a, a more kind of eclectic uh, range of, of sources and sciences, and so I'm always looking at you know nothing about human health or physiology because like i love studying pharmaceutical research of like okay um like one of the hot things right now is they've got interleukin-6 monoclonal antibodies in phase two clinical trials for depression um, which is really cool and it's like okay so that's like a very very precise mechanism but if we can kind of reverse engineer that and how do we modulate those pathways naturally functionally but it's like nothing about human health makes sense uh, until you look at how the human species is living, you know, in systems biology, and you start yeah. thinking about humans more as kind of a macrobe, a, a giant microbe, microbial species. So this kind of segues us perfectly into, I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on, you know, germ theory, terrain theory, because I think mm -hmm. with COVID and microbiome, it's just like right there of this little bit more reductionistic, archaic sort of germ theory, germs are bad, kill them all, sterilize the world like we're doing, versus more of this new theory model that is terrain theory. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and I think that that whole German theory and terrain theory conversation to me illustrates um, an inherent problem we have within the natural world, a natural industry, and, and you see it in the allopathic conventional side as well, where people love to be in camps, yeah. right? Um, and so now when you have those two kind of competing ideologies, you automatically get people falling into camps and going, well, that side is complete bullshit because we are right, you know, versus looking at, okay, how does it make sense? Because I've, I've actually done a number of interviews on this through 2020, and to me, I, I cannot, for the life of me, understand why anyone who knows anything about how cellular systems work, viruses, bacteria, immune system, and all that, cannot see that the actual truth lies as a mix of the two, Yeah. right? The germ is important to be present to cause an infection, but whether the germ expresses its virulence factors and has the ability to cause an infection is determined by the terrain. Right. So it's it's a mix of the two. Um, you cannot get a flu infect uh, influenza without the presence of the virus. At the same time, you could have exposure to the virus and still not get the flu. Right. Because the terrain doesn't allow the virus to express its virulence factors or it prevents the pathogenesis of the of the germ. And so it's both. Right. To me, it's so logically both that I don't quite understand how we fall into these two separate camps. 
Um, and, and because it's both, it means that not one or one of the either of the polarizing approaches is the right approach, right? It's certainly not let's kill the germ, kill the germ, kill the germ. We'll never be able to control germs, right? We should know that as a society by now because germs have outsmarted us for millions of years where they're going to continue to do that, right? We can't control the germs. Um, we can, to a certain degree, control the terrain, um, but we still have to be cognizant of the germ, right? We cannot ignore the germ and only focus on the terrain because in, in ignoring the germ, we lend ourselves to the opportunity where the germ can actually take advantage of any gaps that we have not filled, right? And COVID is a great example of that, right? It's, it's a unique germ in that one of the ways it's, it's decided to be able to, or it's figured out to target us as a human is going after our ACE2 receptors, right? And, and those are very prolific receptors on many different cells in the body. So it has lots and lots of targets. Um, now we can do a lot for the terrain to make it really hard for that germ to infect us, but we also can't just ignore the germ, right? We have to be cognizant of how that spreads you know, how it contaminates things and what the, what the transmission rates are and who's most vulnerable to that germ and so on. So we still need that epidemiology, that infectious disease type of focus. At the same time, we have a huge opportunity to work on the terrain as well. You know, so to me, I cannot think of a situation where it's all or one, you know, where it's all germ or all terrain. It's a mix of both. Mm-hmm. It was really well said, you know, just like we were saying before, the, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle because, you know, and, and again, it becomes that that polar, the political polarization or conventional versus functional and something I'm always saying is, guys, it's not it's not versus anymore. And like mm-hmm. that ideology by itself is very faulty. And, you know, I can't help but get it out of my head of like when there's scientists out there that are debating like how likely it is that the human species is going to go extinct within 100 years because of anthropogenic causes and human self-destructive behaviors it's like i think we need to all kind of get on the same team here but like you're saying you know we can do so much through our uh environmental intervention strategies psychological intervention lifestyle intervention supplemental pharmaceutical to, um, you know, build up a resilient terrain, to have a resilient, ready-to-go immune system and and train those um, immune cells using all sorts of uh, healthy microbes and whatnot. But at the same time, even the most kind of bulletproof terrain, the right bug comes along, whether it's parasite or Lyme or or a virus. Um, So it is, it's it's a little bit of both. And I think that's really where we're going to find the most success is when we start um, you know, combining the best of both worlds. Totally. I mean, it, you know, listen, you could be the healthiest person in the world taking all the supplements, the right nutrition. You walk into West Africa and get exposed to Ebola, you're going to be in trouble, yeah. right? Yeah. That, that germ does not care about the terrain and it's going to do what it does. So there are plenty of, of examples of germs that will, that will, you know, no matter what the terrain looks like, still be able to exercise its, its pathogenesis and so we have to be cognizant of the germ. We have to understand how these things are transmitted. We have to try to protect people to a certain degree, um, you know, from the germ itself. But at the same time, we cannot ignore the terrain. And we have to look at all of the amazing opportunities that we have to modulate our risks by, um, by you know, changing the terrain. And the vast majority of, of infections, I would say, could be 
reduced and prevented to a certain degree by having better terrain, right? That, that's the ecological, the microbial ecosystem within us. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, we have lots and lots and lots of microbes that are, that are natural inhabitants of our system whose job it is, is to protect us from invading uh, pathogenic organisms, right? That's a big part of what they do in our system. So if they're there and they're there at the right amounts, then they're going to play that role and they're going to protect us. So that focus on the terrain is really important. At the same time, we don't necessarily need to, you know, uh, carelessly or or um, without care, you know, expose ourselves to really pathogenic things either. Absolutely. So that's a that's a perfect segue into. I think it was you that I, I first heard use the phrase you know, standard American gut, which I love because it spells SAG, which is just perfect. Um, So I always talk about, you know, Uncle Sam and Sam being the standard American metabolism with his saggy standard American gut. Um, (laughs) All driven by the sad American diet, right? (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. You got a sad, saggy Sam. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Oh, man, Sam's a wreck. That's a t-shirt. That's sad, saggy Sam. That's another (laughs) t-shirt. I'll be sure to print some up and send them out to all y'all. But um, yeah, you know, and so with the standard American metabolism, like when I'm consulting with people, I kind of just for the sake of simplicity of you have that kind of growing complex chronic illness demographic, the mold, the Lyme, the just chronically Mm -hmm. ill that there really aren't a whole lot of solutions for uh, conventionally. Whereas then, you know, the vast majority, though, when you look at like 70% of Americans being overweight or obese, uh, obese, you know, 88% 88% metabolically ill, like 43% diabetic, pre-diabetic. And you look at that kind of phenotype of what is that standard American metabolism, the dysbiotic leaky gut and the, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver, the insulin, just the list goes on and on and on. So I'd love to hear you kind of characterize, like, what is this standard American gut? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, so we have that biome effects test, right? Yeah. Love the, it. The, yeah. The gut, the gut test. And now we've done almost 5,000 tests. And um, and we designed the test to be able to provide us with really great functional data on what this this American microbiome looks like. And and then because the test is also associated with the, with the survey that you take and a lot of functional um, effects within the microbiome, we can trace a lot of the trends we're seeing back to outcomes that people are having, right? And we actually have a whole data science team um, that is actually pouring through the endless amounts of data. Because from one person's microbiome, if you look at the raw data, you get something like 85 gigs of data, gigabytes of data from one microbiome. So you imagine we've got over 5,000 um, you know, microbiome uh, and uh, data pool there. So it's a massive amount of data to crunch through. But what we're starting to get is a real clear picture of what the standard American gut looks like across the board, no matter what they're suffering from, whether it's they're dealing with autoimmune diseases or they're dealing with uh, obesity and heart disease. There's a lot of commonalities in the standard American gut. So some of them are uh, really low diversity, right? We, we tend to have as a society pretty low diversity within the microbiome. And, and that has very direct consequences for the way we function because you know the somewhere around 70 80 percent of all metabolic function in our bodies coded for by by microbial dna right we in our own chromosomes 
don't have enough genetic material to code for most of the metabolic processes we need in order to function as a human, right? We count on bacteria DNA for that and, and microbial DNA, uh, mostly bacteria, but other microbes as well. And as we start to lose certain populations of bacteria from generation to generation, we're losing complete functionality, mm-hmm. right? Our ability to process things in adequate ways completely changes inside in our system. Our response to food intake, our response to our environment completely changes because we're missing key microbes. So low diversity is a huge, huge issue. And we've got this mass extinction going on within the microbiome, which is a topic we should we should we should touch on um, because it's a it's a scary proposition to me. That's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. Is thinking about the generations to come, how how they are sub- subsequently uh, reducing the number of microbes that exist within them, right? And we are a product of millions of years of evolution and what we call symbiogenesis with the microbial world, where because we are so um, exposed to the microbial world, our ancestors, right, they live off the land, they got exposure to microbes all over the place. We developed a symbiogenesis where we incorporated a large amount of microbes into our system to provide us with really high functionality as an omnivorous type of species. That's a human being, right? And, and then what we've done over the last four, five, six decades in, because of lifestyle and the way we, we live, we have lost lots of those species. And there's some really good studies on this. In fact, a recent article I would encourage everyone to look up that uh, was published examining the microbiome of 2,000-year-old poop that was found, right? This is human feces. And and you look at the significant differences between the microbiome of humans then and the microbiome of humans now, we are this shell of what we have evolved to be, right? So diversity is a big thing. We are also seeing a significant loss in keystone species. So there are certain microbes within our microbiome that play a really protective role for our gut lining, which is which leads to leaky gut if, you're, if it's not protected. Uh, our metabolic response to food, uh, organisms like Acromantia mucinophila, which dictate a lot of how we respond to incoming caloric intake, incoming sugars and carbohydrates. Um, then you've got uh, butyrate-producing organisms like Fecalum bacteria that dictates our gut-brain connection between eating food and triggering leptin and edipronectin and ghrelin, the hunger hormones. So all of those responses are, are dependent on microbes within our system that we're seeing being diminished significantly in more and more of these tests that we're doing in the standard American gut. Um, we're seeing loss of, of metabolically protective strains like bifido, bifidolongum, uh, bifidoadolescentes. And when we're seeing higher and higher amounts of opportunistic pathogens within the microbiome itself. So you always will have opportunistic pathogens. And in fact, many of these opportunistic pathogens perform beneficial functions when they're controlled at certain levels. However, if they're allowed to increase their level compared to the rest of the microbiota, you start to see some egregious function out of them, right? And part of why, the, part of what they're trying to do is they're trying to increase inflammation in the body because they become supported by inflammation because the immune system becomes compromised during inflammation. 
And so the opportunistic organisms are trying to create a scenario where the immune system doesn't function as well. So they will continue to try to increase inflammation by either producing toxins within the system, eating away at things like your mucosal layer, recruiting innate immune cells to areas like the gut lining to increase inflammatory response and inflammatory damage to the system. They're just trying to help themselves. It just so happens when they help themselves, they hurt us, right? But they can be beneficial if their numbers are under control. However, we're seeing more and more of that imbalance. So those are just some of the key things that we're seeing. And here's the amazing thing about those simple features that I just talked about. You could look at meta-analysis of a number of chronic illnesses, right? So you can look at diabetes when we're looking at root cause drivers of these conditions. Um, obesity, cardiovascular disease, uh, reflux disease, depression, autoimmune conditions, even, even gut-associated autoimmune like Crohn's and colitis. When you look at all of these conditions, they present completely differently in people, right? The, your reflux does not look at all like your diabetes, right? Your depression doesn't look at all like your lupus. However, when you dig down to the pathophysiology of these, of these diseases, they all come back to the same root cause. And that is the formation of the standard American gut. The loss of barrier function, the leakiness of the gut, the upregulation of presence or prevalence of opportunistic organism, the loss of keystone species, and the loss of diversity within the microbiome. That is absolutely characteristic in all of these conditions, even though these conditions are seemingly unrelated. Right? One of the things I always tell people is, if you go to your doctor and you say, hey doc, what does my reflux have to do with my depression? They would say nothing. Your reflux is your upper GI issue, too much acid, and your depression's in your brain. You know, if you say, hey, what does my, um, my uh, autoimmune disease have to do with my diabetes? They'd say nothing. Your autoimmune disease is uh, an, uh, an aberrant response from your immune system against your own tissue, and your diabetes is because your pancreatic insulin cells aren't functioning the way it should, right? There's no connection there in typical approach to medicine. That's the failing of systems biology, right? When you look at systems biology, you see, wait a minute, all of these things have the exact same origin and uh, the exact same drivers. They manifest in different physiologies, different parts of the body based on other factors, right? Based on genetic uh, risk, based on lifestyle disorders and so on. So hopefully um, that, that made sense to uh, your, your audience in general, because to me, the most exciting thing about that finding is that we have a really powerful target to go after in order to really improve people's conditions, right? There's going to be other things you have to do for each specific condition, but we can address the root cause of many of these conditions by going after the standard American gut, which impacts the standard American metabolism, and which is, of course, driven in part by the standard American gut. That was an amazing, you know, like gold mic drop type of uh, answer. And so much there. So a couple shameless plugs to the audience. If you guys don't didn't digest that, I've got some workshops and I am a proud provider of the Biome FX, so you should order one through me <laughs> and we'll talk about it. Um, so powerful because, you know, again, like we were saying, where nothing about human health or physiology makes sense if you, you know, it's like you put a single bacterium in, in a Petri dish and it's like, well, what does that really tell you of how that fits in? 
And so this is where, you know, I, I think uh, this this kind of ego seduction matrix world that we're living in, I think humans have gotten so disconnected from their innate intuition, right? You know, we yeah. used, we are of the earth. We used to be covered in dirt and germs all the time. We ate straight out of the earth. And it's like, you know, if if germs were quite as evil as we kind of make them out to be these days, like how the hell did we evolve to, to yep. be the robust beings we are today? Whereas of course now, like we, you know, with uh, diversity, right. And, and Lauren Margolin actually posted that paper in, in my Facebook groups the other day. So we were looking at all that and the fossilized fecal sample and looking at like, Oh, well, you know, our diet used to be much, uh, so much more diverse. We lived in the dirt. We uh, breathed in, you know, all sorts of pseudocommensal microbes all the time in, in the natural environment as, as opposed to, you know, how many different microbes and, you know, different fungal mold species are you breathing in in your pseudo cave? So all of these kind of environmental and, and dietary factors and, of course, our soil quality being a, a big topic and the... Uh, the glyphosate, the antibiotics like Halloween candy, like we are killing that that garden of life that lives within us, that gives us life, that gives us immune resilience and, and trains our immune system. Um, and so the way you describe that of, you know, diversity, like if, if there is one thing that we really know about the microbiome, it's diversity, which I think is so beautiful, right? I think that's such a beautiful metaphor for life itself, right? Of like diversity of humans in, in a society, we always like to say America is the great melting pot. And it's like, isn't there a, a very beautiful kind of spiritual, esoteric, yet biological message there that diversity, yeah. you know, really equals vibrant health? Yeah. And we see that in all forms of biology, right? So if you yeah. look at the rainforest, one of the yeah. reasons why the rainforest ecosystem is so stable is because of the immense diversity within the rainforest and how connected each section of that ecosystem is even though it's separated by distance. So, for example, if you look at the ecosystem of the canopy of the rainforest, right, which can be a couple hundred feet above the ground, the, what's happening in the canopy and the species and organisms that live up there, the animals that live solely in the canopy, they feed what's happening on the ground. And then the, the, the ground plants and animals and insects and all that affect the roots of the trees, which then affects what happens in the canopy and what's available in the canopy. It, you know, it's a, such a complex ecosystem and diversity is what drives it, right? Diversity and that natural beneficial competition is what drives it. Um, and the same thing in our gut, same thing in every microbial ecosystem on earth. Uh, and then of course, same thing in society, right? I mean, it, it, and I, I love that analogy, that, that connection that you make is that the more diverse these populations and ecosystems are, the more stable they become over time. And that stability means, um, you know, longevity, it means wellness, it means um, resilience, right? And that, that's what, um, that's really what health is to me, is it's, it's resilience, right? And, and it comes from diversity. Absolutely. That adaptive resilience, which I, I think we've lost so much of. And, you know, sometimes like, you, you know, me, I, I love the, the science. I love all the mechanisms, but I try to never lose something. I always preach to my students is like, I, I think sometimes, or maybe more often than not, uh, there's more to be learned by zooming out than always zooming mm -hmm. in, you know, zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, you, you lose sight of the bigger pictures. So, 
you know, sometimes if I like need to reel my audience back in, I'm like, okay, gang, you know, we could talk about the the minutia of the differences between all these chronic disease comorbidities. But, you know, if we look at what they all have in common, or if we zoom out even further and think like we are the only species in existence, as far as we know, that lives dysbiotically with the natural world. We're the only species that doesn't live in symbiotic harmony with mother nature. So don't, don't you think, and you look at what that has meant really within the past like hundred years with the industrial revolution and a little historical lesson there. So then it's like, Oh yeah, it's really kind of in the past hundred years, 200 years, like we have severely lost our way as a species, as a collective. Yeah. And keep in mind that we're, we're the only species that deals with chronic illness, yeah. <laughs> multiple chronic illnesses, right? I mean, yeah. uh, I think the estimation is at least 40% of American adults have more than one chronic illness, yeah. right? And, and 60% have at least one chronic illness. And then uh, I, again, that zooming out, I, and I love that. I think a lot of times you have to look at the big picture and look at the big picture connections to things to kind of get a little bit better perspective. Um, and one of the things I look at is, well, what are the other species that are known to have chronic illnesses? Well, dogs, domesticated dogs, right? Our dogs are suffering from atopic dermatitis, from allergies, from diabetes, from cancers, which is so um, you know prevalent among domesticated dogs. Well, you don't see that in gray wolves, right? Which is the closest wild relative to all of our dog species. You don't see diabetes, you don't see allergies, you don't see a gray wolf in the, in the forest gnawing at his paws because he's allergic to the ground he's walking on. Um, you know, but, but we see that in our domesticated animals because now they live within our world, right? They live in our dysbiotic, dysfunctional world. They live in our little ecosystem. They're eating the foods that we produce because we found a way of really producing some shitty foods yeah. that don't yeah. work to support our microbiome, right? So, so the evidence is there, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's really, um, it's really fascinating. And when you look at how we change our metabolism, I know you do a lot on the gut brain axis, which is, which is so important. And, you know, because, uh, the level of stress, anxiety, depression, and all that is so prevalent right now. And it's hit a high note through 2020. And I think it's, it's probably going to get worse over time. Right. And, and we're seeing it in the younger and younger people. Um, just one example of, of something that drives that disconnect, right? So you take, a, a really important compound like tryptophan. We all know if, you, if you've studied anything within biology or nutrition, tryptophan is what's required in order to become metabolized in your system into serotonin, the happy hormone, and then also melatonin, which is important for sleeping, right? So then you would think if I can't sleep well and I'm, I don't have enough serotonin, I'm not expressing that kind of happiness, then I need tryptophan right? That's the precursor, 5-HP, whatever the precursor is we want to use. But as it turns out, it's not necessarily a tryptophan issue. Because if your gut is dysbiotic, and you have chronic activation of the of inflammatory cascades, starting with, with cytokines and, and chemokines like TNF-alpha, uh, interferon gamma, interleukin-6, even if you take tryptophan, what tends to happen is the metabolic pathway of tryptophan shifts from being uh, from being converted into serotonin and melatonin, it actually goes into being uh, converted into something called uh, kynorenin, which eventually then turns into a uh, uh, quinolinic acid, which then actually perpetuates depression, anxiety, brain fog, and so on. 
Hey, Functional Friends, thank you so much for listening to our show. I hope you get so much out of it and this information and education really empowers and educates you to be your own self-healer, to be your own health advocate and help you reach the level of health and life that you truly deserve. So if you are a self-healer, keep in mind that we have a private Facebook group that is solely dedicated to supporting self-healers on their self-healing journeys. So on Facebook, you can search for The Holistic Savage Tribe and you can apply to join our private Facebook group. We do monthly Facebook Lives. We support it as a group community. It's a safe space for everybody that is wanting to improve their health. We'd love to welcome you into the community. So again, if you get on Facebook, you can find us by searching The Holistic Savage Tribe. Now, if you are a functional health professional wanting to learn and interact with a community of like-minded professionals, you can join our private Facebook community for functional health professionals. That is Metabolic Solutions Institute. You do have to be a certified health professional of some kind, and we welcome many credentials, personal trainers and nutritionists and NTPs and FDNs and naturopathic doctors, medical doctors, but you do have to have some sort of health professional credential but we would love to welcome you into the group. It's an amazing tribe of very smart, intelligent, loving, compassionate, functional providers that are always trying to up-level their skill set to help better serve their clients and patients. And we would love to see you there. So if you're on Facebook, search Metabolic Solutions Institute and you can apply to join our community. I can't wait to see you all in there. Hey guys. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all so much for listening to the Holistic Savage podcast. We on the Holistic Savage team all really appreciate you and want to stay connected with you. So please rate, review, and subscribe to help the podcast grow. And if you like the podcast, help get the word out. And now back to the show. Neurotoxic effects rather than the neuroprotective effects that tryptophan can, uh, should be undergoing. So the same starting compound that is supposed to, under a healthy microbiome and healthy metabolic condition, get translated into a happy hormone and one that helps you sleep, is going to get translated into a neurotoxic hormone that's actually going to make you more stressed, release more cortisol, more epinephrine, makes the brain more foggy and increases inflammation in the brain, right? So talk about terrain versus germ theory there, right? The terrain that you've created is going to dictate what happens to nutrients within your system. So it's not as simple and plain as, okay, I just need this nutrient. I need to increase the intake of this. No, there's a lot within the ecosystem that has to change that will dictate your outcomes from, from simple things. Oh man. You know, that was perfect. Cause that was, that was the topic I wanted to wrap up on. Cause, um, as far as I know, I coined this phrase, I, I coined the phrase uh, microglial activation syndrome, which I know that you can appreciate. Yep. And, and I was talking to Jill Krista on the podcast yesterday, you know, mold brain, and she's like, well, it's exactly that. Like, that's what we're mm -hmm. talking about is this microglial, you know, because um, when I do get trolled on the internet, you know, I'm using, I'm using some emotional language. Sure. Mm -hmm. I'll, I admit it, but um, I don't think it's sensationalized where you know, I talk a lot about how inflammation is really the driver, the the mechanism that drives mental illness and people and things like PTSD, yeah. um, which is very well documented through literature. And people, you know, people uh, get a little grumpy at me sometimes. And it's like, well, gang, you know, Big Pharma already knows this. Like there's plenty of clinical studies looking at SSRIs or SNRIs or benzodiazepines of when you look at the mechanism of 
well, the, the benzos, you know, they're modulating the NMDA, which, you know, mm -hmm. that quinolinic acid is an NMDA agonist versus, you know, th things like ketamine as an antagonist or even SSRIs uh, are shown to typically lower interleukin-6 and, and break, um, you know, boost BDNF. So I, I created this whole lecture series that I'm doing at IMMH and all over uh, on this kind of microglial activation. And of course, then IMMH was like, hey, can you just do the gut brain axis? Cause I'm like, yeah, sure. Cause like, if there is one, if there is one thing, cause you know, we could talk about all these other, you know, cool, like Lyme is a cool subject in that or, or but even like I was just in, in my slide deck, I have a paper that talks about how leaky gut is an independent risk factor for insulin resistance, which I thought was really, really cool. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, as you're saying, it's like, again, if we look at the commonality of all these comor comorbid chronic conditions, a lot of it takes us back to that microbial terrain and that immune resistance and, you know, shifting the, the cytokine milieu into this more pro-inflammatory state, which then, you know, this whole idea of brain chemical imbalance, it's like, it, well, it's not wrong. It's just outdated where we see that the brain chemical imbalance is downstream from the inflammatory cascade, which is exactly what you're describing. So, yeah. Uh, you know, by working on the train and, and reducing that LPS translocation or everything else, or then short chain fatty acid, you'll like this, man, you'd be proud because, you know, I dug up some papers on how the short chain fatty acids actually inhibit microglial cells or, or at least yeah. decrease the, the cytotoxic M1 phenotype, right? Yeah, exactly. No, you're, you're right. And I love that you're lecturing on that because it's, it's, it's so important. And uh, we've been able to do work um, through our partnership with um, with Novozymes, the Danish company that we work with now, um, and and their um, acquisition of a, of a company called Precision Biotics, um, there is a unique strain called uh, Bifido Longum uh, three five oh, sorry seventeen fourteen that they've developed, and they've done a whole bunch of clinical work at APC, which is in Cork, Ireland, which is kind of the, the gold standard global institute for gut brain studying. Um, and what they've been able to show is this organism, which is a very unique organism in that it has this exopolysaccharide covering on the outside of it. Um, that organism modulates inflammatory responses in the gut, but that, that modulation of inflammatory responses in the gut, specifically things like TNF-alpha, NF-kappa-V, IL-6, and so on, has direct impact on microglial activation in the brain and all of the inflammatory processes that then occur in the brain, right? And they show that it can do that in the presence of external stressors. So external stressors will activate the, glu uh, the glucocorticoid, uh, glucocorticotropin releasing hormones, and then that's gonna you know, um, upregulate in uh, activation of macrophages and microglial cells to increase inflammation in the brain. And that inflammation in the brain is gonna activate the sympathetic nervous system and so on, it becomes a Con, uh, a constant loop, right, of keeping the body in this heightened flight of fight stress state. Um, and what we've been able to show through the clinical trials is using a bacteria that can modulate the baseline inflammation in the gut, actually within a relatively short amount of time will bring down that inflammation in the brain. And you can measure it through reduction, significant reduction in uh, cortisol and other stress-related hormones. And in fact, one of the awesome parts of one of the studies that they did, they actually showed the, the relationship between bringing down those chemistries and bringing down that inflammatory cascade 
and then shifting of brain waves. They showed that utilizing this probiotic bacteria, you can actually shift the brain to remain in theta wave dominance for longer, which people know that as the flow state, right? Being in that like really uh, active brain flow state without all the stressors and things that are distracting us and, and keeping us from doing multitasking and so on. So, and then at the same time, which is not surprising, they've done sleep studies on this showing that the time to sleep is reduced, the duration of sleep is improved, and the quality of sleep as measured by sleep studies dramatically improved as well when you're not in this constant activation phase mm -hmm. through the microglial activation and so on. And you can do that through the gut, right? So it just goes to show that if you can do that through the gut, the gut is likely a really uh, prominent fixture in driving this dysfunction to begin with. Right. So and they're just talking about one or two billion CFUs of this probiotic bacteria, a single species that is able to start to modulate all of this, which is mind boggling to me. And uh, we're, we're actually going to be releasing that in, in within the next month or so um, as, a, as a product we call Zenbiome. And uh, well, I'm super excited. It's probably one of the most exciting things we've done, because as you've identified, this is a really uh, needed area of intervention. Right, where we need to be able to help people with, with coping with all of this uh, constant activation. Oh man, the, like this is like kid in the candy store over here. Like that is so exciting. Uh, you know, I will be the first to be dispensing all the Zen biome and private label that stuff because yeah, for sure. You know, the implications of that are, are huge. Not even you know insomnia and sleep issues. You know, how many people have sleep apnea these days, right? Mm -hmm. And depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, autism, but then also like neurodegenerative disease, where you know, I mean, Alzheimer's is like the seventh leading cause of death for Americans, and yeah. you know, Parkinson's and kind of this autoimmune. And part of what makes the, um, and this is why microglial cells is, are such a huge area of focus, is because the the neurodegenerative, neuroinflammatory cascade, it's, you know, as you're implying, very uh, self-perpetuating. You know, yeah. we get neurons that get inflamed, they're releasing, you know, ATP and HMGB1, and there's the, the MAC1 receptor, and, and it just, so it just keeps itself going. It's that fire that's burning out of control. So... I think these types of therapeutics where we're changing the train, we're actually modulating the immune response away from that pro-inflammatory phenotype. Um, and with that also then comes, you know, if we can shift the, the phenotype to more of the neuroprotective M2 and get more, like I bet, and I'm, I, I'll, we'll have more behind the scenes conversations one of these days. I'm working some companies, but, you know, looking at things of brain derived neurotrophic factor coming up with that and, all the studies they're doing behind that for, wow, you know, exogenous BDNF can potentially, you know, heal a, a degenerated brain or heal the beta cells in the pancreas for, you know, type one diabetes. So it's like looking at, you know, natural ways of how do we really um, boost those, those mechanisms. And I think the microbes are kind of the most promising. They, they are. And, and, and again, you know, it's no surprise when you just look at our evolutionary history, right? Mm -hmm. We evolved to, to live within, in a symbiotic manner, these, this microbial work. Um, and I think people forget that the microbes are here well before us, right? They were here billions of years before us. So this is their, ter this is their terrain. Um, and, and we, our cells are made up of microbes, mm -hmm. right? Our mitochondria are ancient pleiotropic bacteria. So every one of our cells contains hundreds if not thousands of ancient bacteria in it. And the, the rules for cellular com communication were written by microbes, 
right? The the production of hormones and all that, it, it, we it's interesting. And I I do this part of the lecture uh, when when I talk about gut brain, where we have a bit of a hubris, right? Because we are this multicellular organism, we are at the top of the evolutionary ladder. And we look at all our biochemistry, we look at the, our endocrine system and the production of all these sophisticated hormones, the BDNFs, and you know, we look at um, things like serotonin and dopamine and all of these neurotransmitters, all of this complex chemistry that we can do as this advanced species. What we forget is our system, our endocrine system learned how to make all of those from bacteria. And in fact, the bacteria in our microbiome make all of them as well. And, and there is evidence showing that we, as a species, copied the bacteria's ability to do it. So bacteria were making serotonin, dopamine, BDNF, and all that well before we were here to label it and, and utilize it and understand it, right? They were making it for billions of years for cellular communication. These are all tools that they use for cellular communication in our system because we are made up of microbes. We adapted these same molecules for our own cellular communication from end to end of our body. And so we have to respect and we have to fo focus on the microbial world within us because that's really where all of our capabilities come from. You know, so the microbes are, are, are key. Absolutely. I always like to say the microbes are the building blocks of life itself, you know, and I think mm -hmm. uh, that's what makes microbiology research and microbiome research so, so exciting. I, I think it is the, the science, the area of study that's, that's going to lead the collective uh, back to, you know, that return to symbiosis that I kind of yep. keep talking about. So, okay. you know, this, this conversation has just been mind blowing and, and, and enriching. And, and I think that's a perfect sort of note to uh, wrap up on. So what a pleasure. Uh, thank you for giving me that insight too. Of course. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And, and hey, thank you. And congratulations on all the teaching you're doing. I think that's absolutely fantastic. Knowledge is power. That's one of my favorite things to do. Um, and, you know, and then it's, it's up to companies like, like ours to add to the science, to give people like yourself that information that you can then really go through and extract and understand and then teach to others. Right. So so that becomes a really nice symbiotic relationship that will perpetuate the knowledge base and hopefully lead us into a more, um, you know, a new, a more balanced and diverse world. Right. Absolutely. In so many respects. So so congratulations on everything you're doing. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on. And, uh, you know, I look forward to, to time number three at some point. Oh, absolutely. That means so much, man. You know, my my mantra of. Uh, the best treatment is prevention and the grace most smalls teach people how not to need it. And that's kind of what we're doing here. And, and conversations like this really matter. So man, I, it's such pleasure. I can't wait till we cross paths in person again and conferences kind of come back to life. Got my mega side in the, you know, get my throat going here, but yeah. thank you so much for your time. And there'll definitely be around three. I, I think you and I have a lot of work to do in this world and it's going to be a lot of fun. So I appreciate you. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Hey, have a beautiful rest of your day, my friend. Me too. All right. Bye.